Though I enjoy time in the garden, the only things I'm really good at growing are garlic, strawberries, children, and cats. If you'd like to learn more about how to shape the landscape and improve your designs, I'd like to suggest one of my friends with a wide range of experience. That's Carl Treen of Food Forest Card Game. Lately, I've been following his blog as spring has turned to summer, and want to recommend his article, 21 Choice Perennial Vegetables for Four Season Climates. While you're there, you can also pick up a copy of Food Forest Card Game and further your understanding of the relationships that make a permaculture garden an integral part of your local ecology. You can find all of that and more at foodforestcardgame.com slash blogs slash news. Are you working on a project and looking for someone to bounce ideas off of and provide another opinion? Planning your next steps, but wondering what options are available to you, whatever your stage in life? Let's schedule a time to sit down and talk about what you've got going on. You can do that now by clicking on the link Schedule with Scott in the show notes. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. My guest today is Erin Axelrod, partner and worker-owner at Lift Economy. She joins me to discuss how Lift Economy is working to repatriate land, resolve housing issues, and create socially responsible businesses by investing in and providing support to women, indigenous, and people of color-led organizations. Using her years of experience as a framework, Erin provides multiple specific examples of what this work looks like in practice, what we can do to steer our economy towards regenerative businesses, and to heal our relationship with money. Enjoy this conversation with Erin, and I'll join you again after. Then Erin, if you're ready, could you give us a bit of your biography and background, and we'll take the conversation from there. Absolutely, Scott, and I'm so grateful to be on the podcast and honored. I love this podcast and love talking about permaculture. So my bio or background would be I studied urban studies, so how we meet our needs in urban areas and the connection between urban areas and the rural resource depletion, which I love how Toby Hemingway, one of my permaculture teachers in his Gaia's Garden book, talks about really the how we think about growing all the material culture we need in our urban areas because the connection between the urban and rural areas is pretty stark with such degradation caused by our urban lifestyles. And so I focused there and that led me to working for four and a half years as the city programs coordinator with Daily Axe Organization, a permaculture-based nonprofit in Northern California. Loved that, got to develop and establish a gray water program there. And that experience led me to getting more connected to our economic systems which has led me to what I've been doing now for the past eight years, which is a worker owner with Lift Economy. We are a for-profit California benefit corporation, but we we don't operate with money or profit as the end goal. So we are worker-owned, democratically controlled, one worker, one vote. And really our, our vision is to transform our entire economy in partnership with many, many entrepreneurs and movement builders and justice weavers. And really the vision is how can we catalyze economies 
polyculture economies that meet human needs in ways that regenerate the ecosystems within which we abide. So working within that capitalist framework to create businesses and opportunities that are more equitable for the people who work within those companies, as well as caring for earth and the other than human life in the process? Yeah, and I, I like to actually challenge a little bit. I like to use the term business as usual. My business partner, Kevin Bayouk, always reminds us to use the term business as usual because capitalism, then you get into debates about, well, is the U.S. actually a capitalist country when we have so many subsidies for so much, you know, corn and prison industrial complex and um, all sorts of things. So the, whatever it is right now that we operate in, we call it the business as usual economy. And we know that, you know, with 800 million people without access to sanitation and the, the you know, hundreds of millions of people going hungry all across, especially, especially in U.S. cities and streets and suburbs, we know that the business as usual economy right now, as it plays out, is creating adverse outcomes for everyone on the planet and we need to correct that. So we try and steer away from like the uh, the linguistics or the uh, vernacular and, and more towards, okay, how do we fix these adverse outcomes and how do we really steer our current economy towards better outcomes? And what are some of the adverse outcomes that you're identifying and working towards mitigating? Well, certainly I want to honor Right now, today, it's, we're recording this on Juneteenth, and the Movement for Black Lives is really using this as a moment in history, an opportunity to call for justice and a number of demands. And a lot of that revolves around defunding the police. And so when I think about defunding the police, one of the things I think about is, wow, if we defunded the police, which actually there's a lot of evidence to support that that would make all of us safer, that, that policing actually doesn't create more safety, it creates more violence on our streets and in our communities. So when I think about defunding the police, I think about who are the leaders that are creating the alternative funding pathways for community resilience in many different arenas, and whether that be community resilience in the realm of food justice and food needs, or community resilience in the realm of mental health and compassionate communication and conflict resolution in the sort of more social permaculture, if you will. So I would say, you know, one of the biggest out adverse outcomes that I grapple with on a daily basis is racial justice and how inequitably the resources, uh, you know, 98% of farmland in this country is owned by white people. That is no accident. That is a legacy of colonization, genocide of Native communities, and then the stealing of Black labor to build this economy that we've inherited today. And so that adverse outcome, we need and must correct for that. And those are the, the solutions that I'm really passionate about and I do in my work in a number of different areas is working on repatriating land and housing to Black, Indigenous, and person of color-led organizations, and moving wealth and capital to person of color and women-led organizations. What does that process look like? As someone who's only recently really become deeply aware of many of these ideas and many of the systemic issues that have led to 
these problems? How do we, as people who are interested in making a difference, engage in this space, in this way, to help move capital and land and these other resources around within our community? Going to the permaculture principles, which I, I love because they do give us some thoughtful ways to design our lives, to work towards what David Holmgren and Bill Mollison talked about is use and uh, value diversity, right? And so when I think about many, many of the folks in my community that may be that may be born into white bodied skin like myself. One of the things that we did not intentionally create, but we've inherited as a system of segregation where whereby we may not even have many friends that are people of color, or you know, when we go to a permaculture course, we may not even recognize that, hey, we've self-isolated or we've we've inherited a system of segregation where it's mostly white people showing up at a permaculture course. And so I think one of the pieces that we learn from the permaculture principles is to apply self-regulation, accept that feedback, and then look at the root causes that, you know, if we don't actively kind of seek out diversity, diverse interactions, you know, we're inadvertently creating monocultures that are susceptible to a lack of resilience. So to your question around where do we start, I think that like any good permaculture teacher, it depends. It depends on your sphere of influence. It depends on your passions and what you're good at. For me, I start with looking at economic systems. So in my work, for example, in 2016, my company launched a small pilot fund called the Force for Good Fund. And it was, our goal was to raise a million dollars. We raised, we oversubscribed the fund. So we raised $1.1 million dollars. And the core thesis of that fund was to invest in women and person of color led social enterprises. So that Force for Good Fund has invested in 13 social enterprises, including an indigenous led worker owned cooperative in South Dakota, the Tonka Resilient Agriculture Cooperative. That's mission is to repatriate Buffalo to the great American short and tall grass prairies and have that be led by indigenous land managers at the helm of that. But the way we started was we were observing that less than 2% of venture capital or, or largely other, other forms of capital, which entrepreneurs use to fund their businesses. So this is a real way to get needs, human needs out into the community. Entrepreneurs rely on capital to get those needs into the community. That was just less than less than a percentage point was going to women and people of color. And so there is this huge need to transform the cultural norms around who we say is eligible for funding in this society. And starting that conversation gets other people to recognize that there's a problem and then moves that dialogue so that other funding sources open up. That's the vision. That's the intention. And so far, we've been able to have that fund bring on what's called follow-on capital. So once entities get funded through one investment fund, that opens up pathways for them to access other funds. Capital, for us, it's been an opportunity for us to be in relationship with these entrepreneurs that are doing such incredible work. And you know, we have a, 
a collective many, many years of experience helping companies grow in a way that really supports their values and their mission um, and really supports a values aligned growth rather than inheriting the cultural norms of endless growth that we see as causing these adverse outcomes. In addition to this economic investment and working on like repatriating land, are you also providing business development assistance and support within like a permaculture framework? Absolutely. And that really, I should mention that with the Force for Good Fund, we at Lift Economy are not funders. We partnered with a nonprofit to hold and steward those funds and invest them in those 13 enterprises that I mentioned. And so, and the money was raised actually in a really innovative way, also that uses a permaculture principle of diversification where we didn't want then, you know, to have just one investor putting up the million and getting all the return or all the interest return. We wanted a diverse pool of investors putting up the money so that the returns were then decentralized across a number of people. And one of the principles was we wanted it to be accessible to non-accredited investors, which is fancy nomenclature for the rest of us that aren't that don't have you know a million dollars in assets and so the and there's a couple other the securities exchange commission goes into those details but we wanted the money to go back to a diverse amount of investors as well we've had folks on the show in the past talking about regenerative business and a regenerative future who were qualified investors sharing what some of those insights were into their world when they had a half a million or a million dollars worth of assets and were able to come from that kind of a background. But it's interesting for me because I'm used to hearing usually about large amounts of money coming from family foundations and others to know that you were working with this diverse group of people in order to establish this work on the ground. And I think that's really important to redefine our notion of investment and who's an investor. And we think about that a lot. You did ask a question of, you know, was there technical assistance in what we provided to our 13 entrepreneurs. And yes, very much so. So Lift Economy, we do lots of just rolling up our sleeves and working with entrepreneurs to help them solve on the ground day-to-day problems and challenges of running a business. One of our investees is the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative, which is an amazing housing justice model that was incubated in partnership with the People of Color Sustainable Housing Network in Oakland and the Sustainable Economies Law Center, both of which have very interesting stories in of, of themselves. I encourage people to check those two organizations out. And to expand on this idea of redefining our notion of investors, the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative has a mission to buy land properties, housing off of the speculative real estate market and hold it in perpetuity in affordable housing where the residents actually pay a monthly lease that actually builds equity for them. So rather than this kind of renter mentality, which often in permaculture, we see the, the renter mindset often stops people from taking action to invest in their the ecosystem around them to plant that tree to make those long-term investments in the permaculture systems. The East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative is working at the inflection point of housing justice that often 
disallows people from investing long-term in their communities by creating new incentives for people to invest and to be committed to place, which we think is going to have outsized impact in civic engagement, in ecological functionality of cities. And how they're doing that is accepting $1,000 from non-accredited investors to fund that transition, to fund that buyback of property that right now is locked up in this extractive speculative real estate market. This opens up a whole new world for the way that we as permaculture practitioners can get involved in making a difference within our communities and the broader movement. I'm so used to having conversations about land access issues and how do we start a farm. And here we're talking about tackling some really big issues using a regenerative framework. I'll give you one more that is going to resonate with so many of your listeners, which is that same model of land acquisition for housing justice is happening right now on a national scale. And I really encourage you to have Agrarian Trust on your podcast. The Agrarian Trust just launched nationally with 10 agrarian commons all across the country. And one that I'll highlight that they're raising money for right now is called the Little Little Jubba in Maine. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but it is essentially, Maine has a pretty, pretty harsh legacy of real racial discord and, and oppression of Black people in Maine. And so the Central Maine Agrarian Commons is repatriating land to this Somali Bantu community. And these are Somali Bantu community. These are community members that have been displaced from a number of times and have landed in Maine as immigrants and are going to have the opportunity to purchase a 107-acre farm to practice their indigenous ways of farming and to actually co-steward and co-own land that will, the reason Agrarian Trust is so innovative is it's a national nonprofit that is connected to locally governed commons organizations, 501c2 commons, that allow local self-determination, local governance of land that is held in commons. And really the vision is to make that land accessible for future generations, for land stewards, for young farmers, for person of color farmers, and to have it again collectively owned so that it's not at risk of going back onto the speculative market and being transformed or developed, but to have, to regain that, that commons or trust of land that we know can provide food and ecosystem services for generations to come. You mentioned governance there, and I've been having conversations as of late about the need for political action within the permaculture realm, because many of the things that we often want to do run into legal issues and other problems. What kind of engagement are you getting with local political leaders and others in order to move some of these projects forward? Or are you just kind of working outside that space as much as possible? I mentioned before the Sustainable Economies Law Center, and we partner with them so, so much. They are actually, a, talk about governance, we often joke about the nonprofit industrial complex. That's like how many nonprofits are very hierarchical and also spend, you know, up to 40 or more percent of their, the money they bring in is just spent again to 
raise more money. And so the Sustainable Economies Law Center is very different. They are a worker self-directed nonprofit. And so they have um, non-hierarchical salaries. Everyone gets paid the same amount, regardless of whether you're a bar certified lawyer or not. But they are really at the helm and forefront of changing policy. They were at the, the forefront of changing the cottage food law in California to or, or instituting the cottage food law in California that has opened up cottage food businesses. They are working on community compost laws in California. And then we launched with them last year, Lift Economy launched the next egg, which is really working at the intersection of allowing people to unlock their money that's tied up in retirement savings, which right now in the US is $29 trillion of retirement savings. So many of you, many of your listeners might have a 401k from a previous job or a 401b or an IRA. Right now, that's going into a mutual fund that generally speaking, is probably not tied to permaculture values. But the next egg project is helping people move that money into self-directed 401ks, self-directed accounts that we can actually, I'm going to be able to, to invest with my retirement savings, which for the first time in my life, I actually have an account lift started a retirement savings last year as a part of this pilot to actually model how my retirement can be investing in the 13 acre vill- eco village right down the street from where I live that is, you know, has black and indigenous led farm on it, has carbon sequestering buildings on it. You know, what an, what a different perspective of me having a retirement portfolio where I can be investing my retirement in something that is actually creating a future for my future ancestors. <laughs> and is that program or are there others like it that are accessible to people who might be in a corporate job already that they could go talk to their HR folks about offering more of that self-directed option? We definitely want to get there. And right now, Lyft Economy has been piloting right now the kind of employer plan. And so we're working on that. And if people, you know, I'll give you my contact info, if people have corporations that they think would be open to piloting, we're definitely open to discussing what's possible. That's a permaculture principle at Lift Economy. We definitely, we definitely, definitely use the kind of experimental start small and slow solutions. So try something, try a, an experiment. This is advice we give to any entrepreneur and many of our entrepreneurs. We ask you to start small. And the, the goal is to, to get as much information as inexpensively as possible so that you can learn as cheaply as possible and iterate. And this is something that I think is really unique in the business consulting frame. There's a lot of business consultants, market consultants out there that will charge you, you know, $50,000 or $100,000 to develop a business plan. We would much rather you spend $20,000 to prototype a product, sell it, get the feedback from your customers and use that to inform your business strategy. So that type of permaculture ethos of using small solutions and then accepting feedback. What are some other projects like this that are on the horizon that you're looking forward to or related organizations that are also doing this kind of permaculture economics? I could share a few other examples of clients that I work with, which might be helpful. I know that one of my specializations that I've 
just because of what I'm attracted to in the world, I definitely am the, the kind of the plant person in, in the permaculture garden. And I am really attracted to folks that are using partnership with plants and partnership with life to grow sustainable enterprise. So one client that I'm really inspired by is Winona LaDuke, who's a very prominent indigenous rights activist who is not only at the line of fighting against the pipelines with the Enbridge Line 3 that's threatened to come through uh, Minnesota's waters, but she's actively working and they're eating hemp right now as we speak on her indigenous lands to grow a bioregional hemp economy and one that utilizes all parts of the plant and is in sacred relationship with that plant. One thing I do want to acknowledge, I want to say, I, I am calling in from unceded Huichin or uh, land that formerly belonged to the Ohlone people. So that's where my home office is, is based on. And I have it in my email signature, that, that land acknowledgement. And I do think it is really important as we move into the space of kind of humbling ourselves to these uh, regenerative principles that we really honor, that there's nothing new here. There's, and that, that much of what we do is actually conducted, much of the work we do, all of the work we do is conducted on land that has been stolen. And that repair work that leaders like Winona are doing can be done in our social systems by acknowledging the ties and the relationships with the indigenous people the learnings from Indigenous people, and it also has to happen in the biological realm. So with the hemp that Winona is growing, we're leaning into and learning from the work that's that's being done to develop a regenerative organic standard with David Bronner and Patagonia and Rodale Institute, and over time are growing into developing regenerative hemp growing practices that tribes can actually lead and that tribal communities can actually be at the forefront of of implementing. And then to be able to use that hemp in many different applications, whether that be hempcrete building, whether that be fiber textiles is a big interest of Winona and also grain and seed production to create high quality pastas and very nutritious hemp foods for tribal communities. And and I want to acknowledge something about Winona that I think is so courageous is is really being at the helm of innovating and not just fitting into the existing kind of CBD crash and boom and bust cycle that our economies are based on, our businesses usually economies are based on, but really seeing, you know, how could we vertically integrate into a way that would actually be sustainable for a bioregion? Um, and so that's something that I, I work on a, on a very regular basis in consultation and in service to Winona's vision around, you know, what are the machines we need? What are the decorticator machines we need to get there? How is, what is the performer going to look like that an investor will even consider to put some money into? What's the philanthropic capital we need to get there? And I'm, I'm really honored and grateful to be doing that work. You mentioned there the boom and bust cycles of, of business as usual as it is right now. What are some of the ways that you're looking at this in order to minimize those kinds of cycles for the people who you're working with moving forward. It sounds like, you know, you mentioned the CBD there when it comes to hemp and looking at a diversity of products. Is it just working on that kind of a mindset rather than going for like what's quick and easy right now in the moment? 
and trying to create a long-term vision in the process? Well, we have to repair our relationship with money. My best friend, Ariel Greenwood, we, we've talked a lot about, you know, money has become the predominant proxy for meeting our human needs on this planet. And Ariel coined this term, the, you know, the, the million dollar subsistence lifestyle or the $300,000 subsistence lifestyle or the $30,000 subsistence lifestyle. This ties back to your, your most recent podcast with the altruistic hedonism around no matter what amount of money in the bank we have, we, many, many of us in this culture, I won't say all of us because indigenous leaders and black and brown communities really are often at the helm of, of leading around, you know, getting shit done without money and recognizing there's there's a lot of different capital forms but many many of many many of us are really trapped trapped in this money paradigm that the primary and only way to meet our needs is by inserting ourselves in these extracted cycles of earn enough money through extraction of other people and bioregions to get mine get my house get my food and as long as I've met my needs, we're all okay. And so healing, healing our addiction to money, really, and thinking about creating polycultures of resources and supports that meet the holistic needs of humans really means rebuilding the relationships with our neighbors and rebuilding the relationships with ourselves, the, the ability to be internally resourced to tend to when we're feeling wounded or hurt in during a day to be able to give ourselves the compassion and the tending that we need to move through that pain and trauma and show up again at the next meeting without bringing all that trauma to it that takes all the other forms of capital not money <laughs> money doesn't help that trauma healing mindfulness helps that trauma healing non-judgmental, you know, cultivation of our non-judgmental resource capacity helps that trauma healing. Leadership around anti-racism helps that trauma healing. Learning, learning about the amazing, amazing leaders right now that are teaching racial trauma healing, everyone from Resma Menicom, my grandmother's hands, to Stronghold, to Insight Prison Project, to Restorative Justice. So, thinking about resources in a really different way, thinking about intellectual capital, experiential capital, lived experience, not just academia, but actual lived experience. And that's why I like to have people like you on the show is just because this is so foreign to me when it comes to this side of development, even in understanding the importance of, you know, all the forms of capital that we bring to the table. You know, in my conversation with Annie Racer Roland, the fact that I lived way below the poverty line for a long time because of the importance of this kind of work for me. And then like learning how to get all kinds of things done with next to nothing. But then what does it look like when we do have a variety of resources from a large community to the intellectual capital, to the financial capital, and all these things come together and coalesce in a way that allow us to build something much bigger than ourselves that has a lot of meaning for the people who are involved in it. And I think that one thing I will say is a lot of your listeners have really 
developed a lot of wealth in the realm of living on less, you know, frugal, you know, growing food. And that's an incredible resource base. And maybe there's an edge opportunity for cultivating more wealth in the realm of, you know, the equity and justice movements. And so where I would start, you know, one, one step I would start with is, is really doing like a, like a personal analysis of like, when something comes into my frame about Black Lives Matter and policing, what do I know about the history of policing in this country? And could that be a, could that be an opening in? What do I know about the legacy of racial injustice in land acquisition or land transfer in this country? And could that be a pathway in? And one of the reasons I I bring that up as a complementary skill to begin to develop with humility and using our design principle of observe first and, and learn rather than inserting our opinions about like, well, we shouldn't be talking about policing. We've got other more important things to address is that my MBA students, we teach an online nine month MBA course. That's an alternative to your standard, you know, $150,000 master's in business administration. Ours is like a couple thousand dollars and it's all online. So it's very accessible. And right after the stimulus checks went out in the U.S., my students, my MBA students immediately came together and started self-facilitating. What would it look like if we collectivized the stimulus checks? So what if, what if we like pooled all of our stimulus checks and collectively allocated, you know, maybe that, that becomes, you know, $32,000 instead of $1,200. And then we collected the, collectively allocated that to a particular resilience project. Or what if we took that and put a down payment on a collective piece of land. And I think a lot of times in permaculture, maybe, maybe, maybe this is just more of a US culture, we focus on individual actions and individual actions are strong. And I'm so curious about collective response and how we hone more and more our collective ability to move capital together, to to move resources together towards a vision where everyone has their needs met in just and resilient and regenerative ways. Are there systems in place that we could utilize as a framework to bring about that kind of change, to take that kind of collective action together, perhaps to buy a piece of land or to invest in a meaningful project? Well, certainly I mentioned the agrarian commons and I really encourage people to research that more. And the Sustainable Economies Law Center innovated this California cooperative structure in California, and it varies by state. There are a number of different structures. And I think that the question around structure is maybe a secondary question. The first question that I would ask is, what is our vision? How do we become more literate together as a society of the reasons why certain people are categorically excluded from meeting their basic human needs and others have more privilege to do so? And by developing that literacy and creating a really compelling vision of what does a liberation economy really look like 
for everyone, where everyone can meet their needs with no one left out. Those are just conversations that we're stopped from having those conversations when we are caught in the traps of the business as usual economy, which is very real. Many people cannot afford to even carve away from the hamster wheel of just making money to pay the rent. And, you know, in our MBA course, we do talk at Lyft Economy, we talk about personal life design. And this is a place where I think a lot of permaculture folks really excel is designing our lives. So we need less money. So we have more reliance on the biological systems and animal husbandry systems around us to meet our our food needs at the very least. But I think being intentional about cultivating that shared vision of a, of a solidarity economy, of a liberatory economy with the people around us is very important. And to kind of take a pause and free ourselves for a minute from the business as usual economy to actually think about that and collectively reimagine, that's the first step. After we know exactly kind of where we're going and what each of our individual roles in that is, then figuring out the entity or structure, just I would recommend finding a creative lawyer who can help you do that, like the folks at Sustainable Economies Law Center. They're, they're, you know, they're out there, they're few and far between, but they're out there. And I, I should say Sustainable Economies Law Center is, if you're interested in becoming one of these really creative lawyers, you can join the Sustainable Economies Law Center and become a certified lawyer without going to law school. Because a lot of people don't know in this country, you don't have to go into debt and go to law school in order to become a lawyer. There are other pathways. But until you've had that conversation with a lawyer who's taken that other pathway, most of us just inherit these cultural norm, norm, the normative statement that in order to be successful in U.S. culture, I have got to go, you know, go into hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt to achieve this certification that there may not even be job security off the other line. And so we need to have the shared vision and then getting really creative and relying on community to help us figure out our place in that shared vision and figure out the pathway that, again, with the permaculture principle of really, you know, obtaining a yield. How do we use and value resources that can really obtain a yield? A lot of us are really distracted in in kind of these inherited notions of the appropriate path to success that limits us from actually obtaining a yield of happiness and satisfaction as we're doing that. I don't remember the movie at the moment, which one it was, but there's a scene between two of the characters where they talk about, it's like, well, I graduated high school and I went to my father and I asked him, what do I do next? He's like, I don't know, son, go to college. I went to college. I came back. I asked my dad, what do I do next? I don't know, buy a house. And it's just like this, all the, all of these standard markers of what one thing after another after another should be in life. And it's, you know, in the context of the conversations, I remember the two characters were having it because they were both terribly unhappy. And how do we find those alternative paths in the world as it is? I mean, I think about my own story in starting the podcast was that I went back to graduate school a couple of years in because there were a lot of doors that were just immediately closed to me in trying to have conversations with some scientists and other people. But as soon as I enrolled in grad school and would send them an email and say, hey, you know, I'm a graduate student and I'd like to interview you about this idea, there was no questions asked. It was like, here's my phone number, call my secretary to set up the appointment. And it's just the way that some of those shortcuts exist within our society. And as you say earlier about reimagining economics, how can we reimagine the rest of our society 
to remove those barriers in order to create more opportunity. And with that, you know, there, oh, there's a lot more equality that can come from it. The reason that Lyft Economy chooses to work in the economic system is that we we really feel like economics has subsumed all other areas and arenas of our of our society. So, you know, if I asked you, like, do you think our government is tied in in bed with our economic system? Probably would say yes. You know, do you think our healthcare system is determined by our economic system, the 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 companies at the helm of creating these uh, health outcomes, you'd probably say yes. Higher education, same thing. So it's a powerful lever to look at it. And, you know, one, one way might be, you know, in your own personal life, what are my personal economics? You know, what wealth is available to me? What wealth do I spend in a day? Where do I spend my money? Where do I spend my dollars? Where is my money sitting in banks? you know, and which banks. And you know, there's a lot of, of personal literacy around finances in the next economy that could be a great leaping off point. I think there's another conversation in there sometime in the future, Erin. But as so often happens, this time passes so quickly. And you've shared so much with us about organizations that we can look into for different ideas on how this can work, about following up with you and Lyft Economy to see more about what your work is and for people who are interested to in investigate your MBA program. But with everything you've already shared, is there anything else that you'd like to share with us before we bring this interview to a close? I would like to share one more inspiring project that I'm working on right now. I'm very, very humbled by and some of your listeners might be familiar with this organization called Green Wave that has a vision of restoring our ocean ecosystems. And when we think about our role in regaining an appropriate and responsible place in the global carbon cycle, you know, we can't underestimate right now that our oceans are really suffering. They're receiving a lot of the waste, right? The waste carbon that, that has been put up in the atmosphere and they're acidifying and I grew up along the coast and I, I do harvest some kelp and seaweeds for some of my own nutrient needs. And there's an opportunity for restoring coastal ocean ecosystems. Green Wave has an amazing vision of hundreds of thousands of ocean, restorative 3D ocean farms on our coasts that are providing food in the form of shellfish and kelp, fertilizer, and that are zero input foods. So we seed the kelp, we seed the oysters, they require no fresh water, no fertilizer to grow, and they're actually filtering the ocean waters as they grow in the case of the oysters and bivalves. And then the kelp is, many people have cited that the kelp offers potentially six times as much carbon sequestration. It's the sequoia of the sea as terrestrial plants. And so I'm really inspired by a project I'm working on right now up in Alaska with um, a remote, doing remote consultation with a community led by Dune Lankard, who's an Ayak Athabascan Alaskan indigenous founder of the Native Conservancy that is has a vision of restoring economic sovereignty and to his native communities through restorative kelp farming. And so I just guess I want to leave that that example. And there's so many others I could share. When I said, you know, this is really hard, hard stuff, it's because 
our business as usual economy really invisibilizes the solution and makes us believe that there's only so much we can do. And, and I really, you know, I've spent the last almost a decade of my life really getting super focused on who's leading, who's building the solutions to sustain human, human populations on this planet. And they're out there and we need to be making them more visible we need to be supporting them. We need to be resourcing them with every ounce of our energy. And you know, it's leaders like Winona, it's leaders like Dune, it's leaders like my client who has a, a 10 million trees project that uh, she is supporting that get me up every day, believing and really embodying and feeling that we can live in right relationship with indigenous communities, with person of color communities and with the the non-human peoples and ecosystems that we are connected to. Well, thank you so much, Erin, for everything you've shared with us today and for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for the invite, Scott. It's really good to be in conversation and may this repair and restoration really ripple out in many more ways and, and really, really grow. Thank you. And that was Erin Axelrod. You can find out about her and her work at lifteconomy.com. Can you imagine the future of a world designed with permaculture? In his novel Utopia, A Permaculture Vision, Jeff Christou takes us on a narrative through a civilization that works with nature rather than against it. Find out more and pick up a copy of the ebook today at permacultureutopia.com. This conversation with Aaron touches on something I've been working on and speaking to other folks in the community, including Karen Olson and Dan Palmer, about over the last few months. How can we break through the limitations we find ourselves in as a result of, to borrow from Aaron, business as usual? Particularly, how do we get the education, resources, and support to implement permaculture ethics and principles at a broad scale, both in and beyond the landscape, given the dire need to do so right now and for years to come? From climate change to oppressive policing to improving the land where we grow food, the problems we face are numerous, with much deeper issues underlying what we see at the surface. Each of us can make a meaningful difference whether we do so through individual action or collaborating with others to dismantle harmful systems. But as I've heard in your dozens of replies to my recent inquiries into the permaculture pit, doing so can be difficult given the forces we find in our own life that resist change. That includes concerns about debt through university schooling, the lack of access to land, or finding a quality PDC program and post-PDC mentoring. What Aaron shared with us, however, opens up many different doors. There are alternative paths to the experience and education we need to become a lawyer, if we so desire. I looked into that one in particular and found four states in the U.S., California, Vermont, Virginia, and Washington, which allow you to do so with no law school required but by completing a law office study program. Three other states, New York, Maine, and Wyoming, also offer apprentice programs, but do require some law school. Beyond the legal realm, there are also trade apprenticeships, if you want to go that route with your work. I'm also interested in exploring and speaking to others about one-on-one permaculture mentor programs that provide more than a traditional permaculture design course. But what if you don't have land or are not interested in land-based permaculture? but want to assist those who are. There are programs like Agrarian Trust. We can also, if life provides us a bountiful income, invest in those programs and others like them. We can donate scholarship funds to permaculture design courses. If you've taken a PDC, 
You can reach out to your old teachers and see if there is something you can do to support their current activities. Or if you want, send a student to Lyft Economy's Next Economy MBA program. Seek out and spend money at stores owned and operated by women, indigenous, and people of color. There's also room for us to work on policy change in our local communities. Lobbying, I know, that sounds like such a dirty word, to repeal and replace laws that limit agriculture. Fight for food justice and cottage food industries. Support farmers' markets in communities lacking fresh foods. And for those of us who are already teachers in the community, do you have the room and space in your life to mentor students beyond the class and classroom? If you took a route outside business as usual to arrive where you are, let me know, so I can share these options with others via the podcast newsletter or in a future episode. Leave a comment in the show notes, email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or drop something in the post. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. Until the next time, spend each day creating the new economy while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.